Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 219. I'm your host, Derek Warren. With me once again, my semi-permanent co-host, back after a, an absence for the week, Jay Pestercelli, CEO of Zega Financial. Jay, how you doing? Good, Derek. I, you know, I just, I was going through withdrawal. I needed to come back to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast. I was, uh, so thank you for having me back. Well, of course, you are the semi-permanent co-host, whatever that means. Uh, means you're around a lot, most of the time. You know, sometimes we have mics, sometimes we have some... It's going on my business card. I think it should, as as it should. Well, Jay, we have a lot to talk about this week. And I we're going to talk a little dividends. And people might say, well, okay, what are you going to really tell us about dividends? But I, I think there's a, a misunderstanding about some aspects of dividends we can kind of go over. We have to talk about what the Fed just did. And, you know, you missed last week, but we sort of started a new segment where I've I've been asking ChatGPT some investment questions. And I asked it some questions about the Fed, so we'll kind of go over those. But Jay, first off, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about dividends. And I've noticed that there's, there's actually some people making videos. There seems like a lot of millennials or younger investors that are, I wouldn't say suddenly interested in dividends, but it, it's, I think it's interesting. I haven't seen this much content. And I'm going to go over a couple things, Jay, really quick. And, and there are going to be some people in the audience who say, yeah, I know what this stuff is, but not everybody does. Not everybody does. So, And I'll tell you, Derek, the, the, dividend, the dividend landscaping is changing, right? I mean, for a lot of reasons and how it applies to us without getting too specific. But I, I think it's a really relevant topic right now. So I'm glad you brought it up. So first things first, whenever you have a dividend, and I, I'm going to use BIL, which is a, a State Street ETF. It's a Bloomberg one to three month T-bill ETF. So symbol BIL, it's not a recommendation, by the way, but look, it's, it's one to three month T-bills. And when you the, the things that are pertinent for a, a dividend are you have an X date, a record date, a payable date, and then you have the distribution amount. And the distribution could be just a dividend or it could be a, a return of capital gains. We'll sort of get to that. So using uh, BIL, the X date was May 1st. What does that mean? That means that's the first date that a stock trades without the dividend, meaning whatever the dividend is, it should all else equal. And of course, you know, Stocks can go up or down by supply and demand, but all else equal, the stock should be reduced by the amount of the dividend. You have to, if you want the dividend, you would have to own it the trading day before the X date because it starts trading without the dividend. You don't get the dividend if you buy it on X date. It's already accounting for that. There's the record date. The record date uh, usually is, you know, like a day after the, the dividend. So in this case, 5-1 was X date. 5-2 5-2 was the record date. And it's a little bit archaic, the record date, but it's just when the company would determine who is on record as a shareholder to pay dividends, send you a proxy statement to vote on boards, all things like that. Yeah, Derek, a little bit of the record date, little color there. It also has to do with settlement, right? So, uh, you know, you've got the X date and then the record date. The record date means you're, you know, if you bought it, uh, the day before the X date, you settle on the record. So it's it's one of those things that gives them the official list of who they're going to send the dividend to, right? So because stocks are at that T plus two settlement. So there's a little bit of 
you're right. It's a little archaic and it's a little bit of kind of clearing mechanics, which I know you don't want to go to go into depth on this, but I think that has, that's why that date is important. That's right. And yeah, let's, let's do an hour about settlements and clearing <laughs> conversion. Right? Oh my God. That will, that will get everybody jacked up, right? <laughs> no, I'm sure there is a, a podcast that addresses that. And those, those people are very interested in it, but well, people do time it, right? People do try to make sure they're in, yeah. you know, a stock or an ETF, you know, they want to know when do I have to be in to get the dividend, right? Like that's some, you know, that, that matters. Well, that's right. And then of course, so it goes X dividend. So the stock is reduced by the amount of the dividend, all else equal. And then you have the payable date. So in this example, five, one was the X date. The payable date is five, five, which is today as we're recording this. And their dividend was 0.353155 cents per share. So it, what's interesting though, Jay, is you know, the dividend goes, it goes X and then you don't get the, the dividend for a couple of days later. So I, I think as we, we think about, and this is one of the misunderstandings, I think, with, uh, with how total return works with a stock. Like, Jay, let's say XYZ stock. Here, I'll, I'll set this up for you. XYZ stock is trading at 20. It pays a $2 dividend. Awesome. And on X date, though, the stock gets reduced to $18. And we assume that, you know, there's no other news or anything else that cause you know, stocks can, the stock could open at 20, even though it paid a $2 dividend if there's enough buying. But let's just go with our example. So, Jay, it's like, okay, my stock goes down to 18. It looks like I lost $2. And part of the reason is that you got to wait for the dividend to come back in the account. So, like, your account's going to show, like, it went down, all else equal if, you know, the stock doesn't change. You don't have anything else in there, right? Yeah, that's right. Because the, uh, all you see is the number of shares times the value of, in your case, this XYZ, which is at 18 bucks. If you, so if you had 100 shares, you, you know, the day before X, you were worth 2,000. And then, then, you know, the day after on the record date or even two days after, it looks like you only have 1,800. But it's because you have this $200 of cash coming your way. And that is usually about a week. Um, Bill is doing it a little faster, but you know, usually it's about a week to so you get your cash versus the decline in price from the X date. You know, the other thing too is so most price charts, and I think our audience knows this, but well, maybe they don't. Maybe there's some folks who don't. A price chart. So if you pull up your favorite broker, or maybe not not even your favorite broker, maybe even one you hate. I don't know. But anyway, the, it's the price chart. Pull up Yahoo. How does that sound? <laughs> yeah, Yahoo, whatever. So you pull it up and it's just the price. What do I mean by that? Well, in our example, the stock goes from 20 to 18. The price chart will show it went down by 10%. $2 is 10% of 20, gets you to 18. However, the total return, including dividends, you're actually flat. It's it's 0%. And Jay, as you just explained, sometimes, you know, it's a week between when you get your dividend and when it was when X. And so I think this is one of the misunderstandings sometimes. And I'll be honest with you, Jay, I wonder why more charting programs don't allow for, hey, let me just click on total return. Because that's really a representation of what you as an investor would have actually realized, right? Yes. Well, yeah. When you, when you think about the total return, I mean, the, the amount you get back from your investment in your example, if that stock 
stayed at 20 and then, you know, paid the $2 dividend and stayed at 18. And then you got your $2 a week later, your return would be, you know, gain loss would be zero. You just happen to now have 1800 of stock and 200 of cash versus before having 2000 of the stock. And so in that scenario, you're right. You didn't lose 10%. Your, your, your stock value went down 10%, but your, your cash value went up by the $200. And so, you know, it's one of those things that gets a little complicated because the, now do that a few times, right? Let's say the next month, there's another $2 dividend and the price doesn't change again, right? Um, now your value is down to $1,600, but you have $400 of cash. So you're right. It would look, it appears like stocks that stocks and ETFs that pay high dividends appear to trend lower. Some bond funds appear to trend lower because their their price might be lower, but the total return hasn't changed. I think it's really important for people to understand when you go, hey, you know, why is this ETF down or why is this stock down? You have to look at the total return to know, is it down or not? I mentioned Yahoo Finance. There is a convenient way in the historical prices of, say, something a, a platform like Yahoo Finance, where they adjust the share price for the dividend. And so don't look at the trading price each day. Look at the adjusted price when you're trying to determine the actual return of your portfolio, because it takes into consideration all the dividends and when they occurred, and it adjusts the price so that you can see the impact of the dividend and know is you know a stock or an ETF up or down. I'm glad you made that point too, is the sort of over time, and especially the higher the dividend something is paying, that chasm between price return and total return, including the dividends, that's only going to spread you know further and further apart. And you mentioned some bond ETFs, something like uh, uh, you know the high yield uh, ETF from uh, uh, State Street as well, you know SJNK or SRLN, which is their uh, their senior loan. Those I think you know those dividend amounts are over time. I mean those are bond funds. Bonds are designed to pay out cash flows to investors. So. You'll see that. And if you just ran a price return only, what's interesting though, Jay, is, you know, if I pull up a chart of, let's say Apple, why Apple? I, I don't know. But we know they've split. Or Tesla. Didn't Tesla do like a seven or eight to one, something yeah, like that? Yeah, a few times. Seven, yep, yep. Yeah. Could you imagine if a price chart didn't adjust for splits? Meaning, imagine the stock is at a thousand, it does a 10 for one split. So you have the same number of shares, nothing's changed. Or, you know, you have, 10 times the shares, but now the price goes from 1,000 to 100. Well, if two weeks ago, uh, the price was you know, 1,010, today on 10 to 1, it would be 101. But can you imagine you had a price chart that just went from 1,000 to 100? You'd be like, what happened to this company? What are they doing? This company knows their management team should be fired. No, no, it was a 10 for one split. They lost 90% in a day. What happened, right? 90% down, right? right. Yeah, it's like, and I get it. I mean, a dividend's a little bit different and you could make some assumptions about reinvesting and things like that. But no, I agree. By the way, it's, Jay, I don't know if you've seen this, but more and more, and I think younger investors, and by younger, so how old are millennials right now, Jay? Do we know that? 
Yeah, 30s, 40s. And what what's the what's the I guess I could ask Chat GPT this. That's that's going to be a segment later. There you go. I sure ask it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I could ask it. But no, I mean I I think millennials um and then younger what I'm seeing, Jay, that's interesting on dividends. You know, we think about dividends are oh, that, that is uh, that is Gen Z, Derek. In case you're wondering, the one you know younger than millennials, it's Gen Z. Your son is a Gen Z. Oh, Gen Z. Okay, all right. I'm we're Gen X, right? We are. Yes. Are we we're we're the older Gen Xers, right? I think. Uh, yeah, I don't know. We're somewhere in the Gen X in the X range, but uh, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's probably about right. All right. I will speak for yourself, old man. <laughs> <laughs> hey, wait a second. <laughs> I, <laughs> let's let's get back on track, though. So my point is, like, you think about div- dividends are usually people who want income, meaning they're retired and they want a bunch of stocks that pay out dividends. They want cash flows. But Jay, what's really interesting is these younger investors, they're actually doing some interesting things. So. I, I watched some videos. Yeah, I did it, Jay. I went onto YouTube and I, I went down this rabbit hole where um, these people are posting videos. And what they're doing is they're actually estimating their annual income in dividends and then they're converting it to an hourly rate. In fact, there's a few apps that are out there that will scrape a portfolio and they'll they'll estimate your dividends and they'll so Imagine, you know, you looked at a portfolio and, and you're going to get paid $20,800 in the next year in dividends. Why 20800 Well, because if you take 52 weeks times 40 hours a week, it's 2080 So a quick way to convert an annual salary to an hourly is take whatever it is divided by 2080 So $20,800 is actually, in theory, the way that they were calculating this, you're earning $10 an hour. So it's just really interesting. And it reminds me of, uh, I mean, it, it's really about cash flows. And other people, Jay, they actually put in, um, there's a bunch of apps, you know, maybe, but I don't want to mention any by name, but they put it in and they're like, okay, my goal is to pay off my cell phone. My goal is to this. And so what they do is they have these dividends that come out and it shows, am I covering my cell phone? Is it covering my car payment? Okay, it's it's almost covering this other thing. But I think it's kind of fascinating. This this whole group that are just loving dividends, Jay. I don't are you aware of this this uh renaissance, I guess? I'm definitely aware of it. You know, we manage some funds that are dividend focused. We won't go into details on that. And I'm absolutely aware of the uh universe of uh of of social media content. That is talking about the you know how to create I'm making air quotes passive income uh, through a dividend portfolio to help pay your bills. Now I think I think that's fine and all. I mean there's a whole different aspect of it with risk and the changing of the underlying price. Right, a stock that pays three percent dividend when it's a hundred bucks and still pay you know that's three bucks, but then it pays three percent when it's fifty bucks. It's only a buck fifty, right? So, like, there's some piece about that that it feels wrong to me to ignore the market movement of the underlying asset that is paying the dividend. Um, it's not always like bonds, right? But this concept isn't isn't foreign, right? People, when you know, when you when you're buying a bond and you expect payments, that's part of it, right? That's all. I mean, it's all kind of linked, right, in one way or another. But I do love that dividends are becoming more and more. Uh, interesting to talk about. 
and there's a lot more ways to generate uh, dividends and earn dividends out uh, uh, in the market now, especially with things like you know, actively managed funds. And so one of the things, Derek, that I always think about, though, when it comes to dividends and when I talk to a real active dividend investor, right, they will tell you if you're not reinvesting the dividends, you're just, you know, you're not you're not in a growth mode. Like if you're going to take the dividends to pay for your cell phone, fine. What do you do when your cell phone's over, right? When you're sorry, when you're done paying for that. Um, in that scenario, uh, you know, w- w- what are you going to do? And the, the answer that a lot of really, I'm going to call hardcore because there is this universe and uh, community of hardcore dividend investors that will talk about reinvesting the dividends, right? Increasing your share count. And, you know, people will know it as DRIP, dividend reinvestment plans. Your brokers will sometimes do it for you automatically. Maybe you have to do it. But I think, you know, when you when you talk about dividends as a means of growth, um, that's what I think about when I think about dividends versus kind of the, you know, this, hey, use dividends to, to pay for something. But that's and I, I, so I don't, I'm going to pause there, but I want to lead you into a point that you have made multiple times of what percentage returns for the S&P are related to reinvesting dividends. Do you remember that number off the top of your head? You've referenced it in the past. Yeah. So from memory, it's, uh, it's not necessarily, so a total return assumes that you reinvest dividends. But then if you look at a decade like the seventies, most of the return in the S and P that decade was due to dividends, meaning your price might've gone up by 2%. And if you got a 5% annual dividend, well, now your total return is seven. I'm used like back of the envelope stuff. So there are times in the market where the dividends really drive a high percentage of the, the total return. In the 2000s or, you know, the, uh, say the 2010s, most of the return was not from dividends. It was from price. But, Jay, I think, you know, when I look at this and I, you make a good point because for younger investors, I think one of the benefits is maybe reinvesting dividends and getting that growth. Like I look at income sometimes as saying that's for later on, but I'm willing to go back and forth. But, you know, I don't you think Jay, like, I I think it's, it's a toss up. Yes. You, you may have some dividends that are paying out, but really you could play the, let me try and reinvest them and get more shares. Right. I mean, that's, to me, that seems like uh, uh, especially on maybe like a, if, if you're if you're willing to be in the underlying stock or ETF, reinvesting is a way to kind of you know add to your exposure to the upside, um, you know, and it's while well, using the kickoff of cash from the underlying itself to do that. So, yeah, I mean that's where usually a lot of kind of uh, like I said, the hardcore dividend investors will say you got to drip, you got to reinvest those those proceeds. What's nice too, Jay, is that. You know, like with us, when the, the separately managed accounts that, that we manage and uh, because commissions are zero, you know, it used to be if you did the drip, meaning direct, uh, you know, automatically, yeah. you get paid a dividend. Yep. Yeah. Different, thank you. D- different. Right, but now with no commissions. I got you, I got you man. You yeah. You know, it is. It is what it is. You Whatever. Always, you always salvage. They, they should make, maybe a new name. Yeah. But now with no commissions, I mean, we do like, as we rebalance accounts, I mean, dividends that come in, they, it's part of, you know, those get reinvested. So 
But I, I think also, Jay, and you've done some work on this, the idea that as dividends are coming in, if you reinvest them, you know, we always think about, oh, what, what do you need for a compounded growth rate to double your money over a decade? And of course, if you get 7.2% annualized, in theory, you know, no cash in, no cash out, you'll double your money in 10 years. But you've done some work on this, Jay, where like if you reinvest dividends, it depends on the rate but how many years to double the amount of shares? Do you want to share that with us? Yeah, like let, let's say uh, you've got a fairly, let's, let's just say you've got a, a, a portfolio that's paying you 5% or you have an ETF or you have a stock that's paying you a 5% dividend, right? And let's just say it's paying you monthly. Maybe it's like an ETF, like you said, like uh, some of the, like the high yield ETFs, right? Maybe like an HYG or J&K or something like that, right? So those at you know at a five percent rate, um, if you wanted to double your shares, and that's if you just kind of reinvested each month, you would end up doubling your shares in just under fourteen years, one hundred sixty-seven months. You would end up having double the number of shares that you started with. And you may say, "Geez, one hundred sixty months, like fourteen years, and I have double the shares." That that I could see why some people be like, "I'd rather just kind of take that," you know. Who knows what they're going to do with that, right? But having doubling your size of your position, you know, is obviously interesting because, you know, you're making double at that point on the actual dollars being distributed to you than when you started. But let's say you were wanted to get a little more uh, aggressive in your underlying holdings and you had an ETF out there that was paying you, I don't know, let's say like 25%, right? In that scenario, if that was paying you monthly, that's just 2.8 years you'd end up doubling your share count. And if you happen to find an ETF that's paying 40%, uh, and in that scenario, you're doubling your shares in just you know 1.8 years. So in under two years, if you can find an ETF or there's not, I don't know of any, maybe some REITs, Derek, that might be paying you that. I don't know. I'm not recommending you go out and finding the highest yielding stocks. There's usually a problem. But there are some ETFs that are designed to kick out High yields. If you can find one that kicks out a, you know, an annualized yield of forty percent, which is three point three percent a month, you would end up doubling your shares uh, in about one point eight years. So is that that kind of paints and paints an interesting picture on why dividend reinvestment could be interesting for those willing to take, you know, more aggressive stance in their portfolio for the higher yield. Yeah, and I'll I'll just say too on on. We're thinking about those those numbers, and you know, you're assuming it doesn't cost you anything to reinvest, you know, and that also sort of makes some assumptions, probably on the underlying price of the of the stock or the ETF that you're going into, and it, and I guess it assumes you're you're getting. <laughs> I think you said monthly dividends, right? So if you, if you do that, but yeah, I mean. I think it's interesting because on one side, you're, you're trying to say, hey, I'm going to build up my portfolio. I'm going to focus on dividends and treat this as almost like income, like a salary. And the other side says, if you're younger, you want to be reinvesting dividends and you want to be really focusing on, on growing the portfolio and not necessarily siphoning cash off the, the portfolio. It's kind of like in a, in a business, like on Shark Tank. If you have to pay royalties, they always say, you know, I'm siphoning cash when I instead I could be reinvesting back in the business. So it's just two ways to look at it. But 
I, I think that's, I, I don't know that I've really heard of the uh, reinvesting the dividends time to double ever really discussed that much. Not, I don't know if you remember that over the last 20, 30 years, right? Well, it wasn't really, it wasn't really interesting before when it's like, oh, you're getting 3% or you're getting 2% on the S&P. It was like, great. When I'm 90, I'll double my shares, right? But the, <laughs> I'm joking about that. But like I said, there's, you know, there's, there's products and tools out there today that make this, you know, a much more interesting uh, uh, concept and approach, right? So, um, for growth of the of your underlying position uh, in a dividend portfolio, you know, is kind of uh, can be maybe kind of self sustaining and uh, and help you increase exposure over time um, without even you know kind of putting money back into the portfolio. And I think you and I would always recommend regular deposits, regular, you know, pay yourself, all of those things that go along when we have talks with advising advisor clients um, that are always important. But, you know, using your underlying holdings to do something uh, like reinvesting dividends is definitely an interesting approach. And it is, I'm not going to say it's new, but it's just kind of, like you said, it's just not something that we've seen a lot, uh, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, but it's definitely becoming a much hotter topic now. What's kind of awesome to think about too, you, know, you and I both went through 2001, 2000, you know, which was 2001, 2000, 2001, 2002, when a lot of people lost their jobs, 2008, 2009. And it is kind of interesting if you think, you know, maybe somebody has a portfolio and let, let's say they're, they're an investor who's really focused on dividends, like they could reinvest it and their, if their circumstances could change. Of course, they could sell some shares to cover expenses, but that, that's just an interesting way of looking at it. They could turn on reinvestment or turn it off if they needed the cash flows. I mean, look, that's what retirees do. Retirees, a lot of them are looking for income. And the, the cool thing too, like I was thinking about this the other day, there's probably a level where you've acquired enough wealth that let's just use 5% or 7%, you know, whatever it is, the dividend where your dividend stream is probably more than your income for most of your years, if you've built wealth. It's kind of an interesting thing to think about. Uh, sure, sure. Like think, think of somebody with a million dollars. If you have 5%, portfolio is kicking off 5%, that's 50,000 a year. Probably more than, than you made when, when you started out. But, you know, it's, it, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Last thing, um, I just wanted to touch on, you know, not all, so companies pay dividends, but Jay, some funds pay out capital gains. Usually, you know, we saw this with mutual funds more with ETFs. It works a little bit differently, but that's just where it's a, it's a distribution at the end, of, usually at the end of the year. And it's, if the fund sells assets and they have capital gains, I won't even mention like MLPs and K1s that will, that will put the other half of the audience to sleep. But they can pay, can pay cap gains out as well. Yeah, I was going to say, you can get a little complicated here when it comes to the tax treatment of those dividends. They are usually taxed, right? And uh, they're taxed as short term. Uh, depends, but normally, right? So it's just something that you want to make sure you're aware of how what the tax treatment is on those dividends. Uh, for those, uh, we see folks that, you know, for those higher end uh, dividend payers, uh, they throw them in a tax deferred account instead of a taxable account. Of course, in that scenario, you're not pulling the money out to, you know, pay for your cell phone in the example that you just said. But uh, you're right. I think the tax consequences of dividends, definitely something to pay attention to. 
Yeah, and they could be qualified, non-qualified. Well, let's just not talk about taxes, Jay. We'll leave that for somebody else. You brought it up. I, I got to put a bunch of disclaimers. <laughs> no, I know. No, look, taxes should be right. part of everyone's. You're right. You know, calculus. But uh, all right, I want to switch to our old friend Jay. You know him. You love him, Jay Powell. He was on stage again, doing some things with interest rates, and. You know, last week I asked ChatGPT some questions. I'm going to ask ChatGPT about Jay Powell or specifically. I mean, first of all, they pretty much in the language seem to indicate they're done now. Although Jay Powell, I think, is still reticent to say anything about cutting. And let me just start here broadly before I get to my ChatGPT prompts that I've asked them about the Fed is like, if they have to cut, doesn't that mean that something's wrong? Doesn't that mean that the the market isn't doing well? Like, I know a lot of people are like, oh, you know, we think they're going to cut later in the year. We want them to cut. But why would they cut if everything's going well? I don't know. Jay, any thoughts on that? First of all, I didn't interpret him saying anything about cutting. I think he set the expectation that rates, the the rate of rate increases may stop or slow, but I don't think he was hinting at all about any rate cuts. Like, I think he made it pretty clear, like, don't expect us to cut at any time soon. But to your point, so I just want to say that first, right? There's, there was no hint out of him uh, that, that cuts are on the way. Oh, no, no. And the last meeting, he even said, we're not cutting. He actually gave a pretty terse answer to a reporter. We're not cutting. We're not cutting. This meeting, yeah, not as much. Yeah, but I, so let's, let's take the scenario where they had to cut. So if they did cut, um, there's there's two possibilities. Um, the one is that things are, you know, so good they could ease up a little bit. But I don't think that's, you know, it, it, he's told us that's not happening. If things are good, by the way, he personally has said he doesn't feel we're going to have a recession, right? That wasn't his feeling. So he's saying he's not going to cut even if we don't have a recession. But if he had to, if the Fed had to cut, it would have to be a pretty bad situation where now they needed to stimulate the economy and prevent a deeper, I'm going to say a deep recession uh, and that they're not causing, you know, damage, right, to the, to the, to the market, just where they have to kind of bail out the market, right? They have to come back with the quote unquote Fed put, meaning the Fed is in the mood now to protect capital markets. Right now, they're trying to slow the economy. So, like, I'm with you, Derek. Like, I think he's made it pretty clear that he's not going to cut. But, the, but you know, they can always be forced to if there was some sort of, you know, an economic, I'm not going to say catastrophe, but significant uh, downturn to the economy. Like a bunch of regional banks failing? Nope. I don't think he like cares about that. Like if that were to happen? No, I don't think he can. <laughs> I think he's fine with that. I don't think that's it. I think, you know, I, he, I don't think he would consider that enough of a problem to have to cut at this point. I mean, he's, he's pretty much like, meh, he's blowing off, you know, the, have we had now five regional banks that got into serious trouble after last week, right? PacWest, I don't know if they actually failed or they're looking for a restructure, but uh, strategic options is what they call it when they're trying to figure out. I guess we'll find something out of the That sounds dubious. I've known, I know nothing about PacWest's balance sheet, by the way, but I'm just, I'm saying that sarcastically. They're exploring strategic options, tells me things aren't great. 
So, so it's number five. And I, again, I don't believe that that is, that is going to be the thing that impacts the Federal Reserve to lower rates. I think it's got to be much more severe than that before they start coming down. Um, I mean, look, like what if inflation dropped to 1% and stayed down there? Yeah, I bet they would, they would do it. I bet they would cut rates. But short of that, right now in 2023, I don't think you should expect it. They wouldn't necessarily cut rates just to do it because it sort of takes away some of their ammo. And, you know, remember when rates were really, really low, they didn't really have that far they could go. They never wanted to go negative, at least not this Fed. Of course, they did it in Europe. But being at 5% feels pretty good, I think, for them because they could do a full basis point cut, 100 basis points, and be down at 4%. That's it. So, yeah, I mean, I think we could be in for, if the economy is good and nothing goes bad, as you say, this could be the new normal for a while. And this is what it was in the late 90s. I remember getting 5% in my, uh, my money market, you know, checking account, which was great. And so I, I agree. I would just say that uh, the bond market disagrees with you and I on this one. All right. Talk about that. What are you seeing there? <laughs> okay. So when you look at, you know, farther out, two, three, four, seven, ten years out on the yield curve, right, which is, you know, basically to say, you know, where uh, the market is kind of projecting rates will be, uh, it's those are significantly uh, lower than um, than where we are today in the shorter end of the curve and where the Fed is, right? So when you've got a 10-year at like a three and a half, but you have Fed funds at 5%, five to five and a quarter, you know, that tells you that the market believes rates will come down, right? Now, I'm not saying it's it's predicting rates will come down in 10 years, but it's, it's, it's telling you that the market is in a position um, that is, does not believe rates will stay higher. Otherwise, they wouldn't, uh, you know, they wouldn't be out in the market with the the, the way that rates are. So, you know, we have this, in, we, you've heard us talk about the inverted yield curve many, many, many times. Um, you know, uh, I think we're starting to see that uh, the market is, you know, has a pretty strong view that there will be lower rates. Uh, and uh, that's why they're down where they are. So I'm just, I, I was sorry, I was stalling a little bit to kind of pull the end of the day yield curve up here. So, Right, the five-year is trading at three point three point four one percent yield. That's where its yield is. But when you look at say just a three-month bond, it's at you know five point five point two, five point three. Right. So you've you've got a pretty wide uh, gap there, which is what I was talking about. Right. That's telling you the market feels that between now and then, that time frame, rates will come down. It's interesting when the bond market too, and I don't want to get into the one month, three month uh, inversion. It's uh, it was the deepest discount that we've seen going back, I think, to two thousand. We talked about that last time you were on. I talked about it a little bit last week. The one month, so there's a twenty eight d twenty eight day bill that was auctioned the fourth. So that's that's yesterday. That's Thursday as as we're recording this on a Friday. And I think the median rate was five and a half. Like two weeks ago, Jay, was the one-month bills were, what, 4.2? So that escalated quickly. I haven't had time to look at the auction results. 
Uh, I did look, I pulled up some of the inventory. It looks like today, the one month bills are right around the one month bills or something like 5.3%. So I thought that was interesting. And, According and- to a US Treasury yield curve.com, the one month ended at uh, 5.6, 5.59 today. But you're right, two weeks ago when we were talking about that, uh, the, 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 the strangeness in the short end of the curve, it was at 3.36. So 3.36 to 5.6. So that's like a 2 point, you know, 2, 2.3% change in the one month rate. That that's that's pretty rare to see in the one month bond without, you know, a lot of Fed, you know, Fed action, right? Not let's like not what happened in 2020, but that is rare. I mean, the 10-3, 10 year, three month. Yield curve inversion. You know, we've talked about this. Cam Harvey uh, created this. He's a professor at Duke. He's written books. Eight out of eight, when the ten-year, the three-month yield goes above the ten-year, eight out of the last eight times, uh, it's it's been a recession. So, I mean, th- this is part of it too. Like, if we don't get a recession this time. It feels like the group thing that's just being thrown out to everyone who goes on CNBC right now is, yeah, we expect slowdown later in the year. We expect our base case is a recession. It's not a bad recession. And then we have this, this yield curve inversion. Like if we don't get a recession, think of how many people are going to be wrong on this. It's just interesting to me. I don't know. Yeah. Well, market has a tendency to frustrate the most people. And if we don't actually have a recession, that would be the case. I mean, Derek, you and I have argued that we're probably we're in an earnings recession now already, right? So whether that is translated to an economic recession, I guess, is a, a different story. And then I guess it depends on what part of the market you're looking at, right? I think housing's experiencing, you know, that sector is experiencing a recession. But when we think recession, what do we usually think, right? Neighbors are losing jobs, people can't sell their houses, right? Somebody's, you know, fire selling their property, like that. That kind of a recession uh, feels a little extreme in this case. Um, so I'm not sure. You know, when we get the definition of are we in a recession or do we end up having one? I guess we'll know when we when they tell us it's over or they tell us that we're in one. But you know, I mean, there's certain parts of our life that are definitely feeling the pricing crunch, the inflation crunch. So maybe we'll find out this whole time we've been in a recession for the last two quarters anyway. All right. I want to get to our friend, our third member of our panel today, Chat GPT. And uh, so I was a little bit critical last week about it because I asked some some questions around list the teams that have never been to a Super Bowl and, and they had ones that were. I asked at this time, I said, uh, give examples of years where the Federal Reserve paused rate hikes and the stock market still fell. And the three that it gave us is May of 2000. And it said, you know, the Fed, and they actually gave a description, Fed paused rate hikes after a period of tightening in response to concerns about inflation. But then, of course, we had the the tech bubble. 2007, they paused rates shortly before the global financial crisis. So they were, they were raising rates into that. And of course, you know, they were trying to slow down the housing market. And 2015, December of 2015, they paused uh, their rate hikes. However, the stock market began to fall shortly after as concerns about slowing growth. So I don't know. I mean, I just think it's interesting 
And like, if you're pausing rates because you think you've kicked inflation, maybe that's one thing. But if you're pausing rates because you think the economy can't handle more rate hikes, that's another thing. In 2000, 2007, 2015, they had to pause their rate hikes. And it's interesting, you know, 2015, we didn't get a, a recession after 2015, but certainly, oh, you know, how do you say 2000? Is that aught? Well, 2000 and 2007. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, and then I also asked it, I said, after the Federal Reserve cuts interest rates in response to an economic downturn, uh, you know, how does the how does the market do? And, you know, I guess 2020 is really the case where that was so short. It was big, but it was short. They cut rates and then the markets wound up going up after that. But like 2001, 2008, I mean, markets still went down a little bit more. But that's what Chat GPT told me, Jay. Well, listen, I, I would ask Chat GPT about that December 2015 raise. So I don't know if you remember, right? That was the first time they raised rates. And like there was some really long period of time. You, you, I know you and I remember 2015, especially the latter half of it pretty well. They raised in December. I think they just did a one raise and paused. But so I wouldn't say that it was really like a series of raises, unless I'm not, you know, remembering that properly. I, I think it was like a pop and then a little pause. And then they continued to build, you know, over time shortly after that. I do remember early 2016, January started out to be the worst January on record. The first three weeks were the worst three weeks in the last, I think it was like last 80 years. Of course, it ended up bouncing up and February was volatile. But I like, look, like you remember these things that happen uh, around those periods of time. There's a worry about oil and there was a worry also about, you know, how much uh, high yield debt held oil and that was going to cause a failure. And then Jamie Dimon came out and said, I think there's a good time to buy a high yield. And that was it. It was all over when it came out. You remember all this, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. Um, I, look, that's that's so it's it's an interesting data point. I would dismiss the 2015 one as a pausing in the rate cycle. But I do like uh, the other examples because uh, they were kind of they did, you know, they, they happened in advance of a decent market sell off. So that's something interesting to glean from that. 98 was another one too. That was the, uh, you know, the Asian contagion as it was called. And the Fed uh, cut rates between September 98 and January 99. And yeah, I mean, markets definitely stabilized. Although that was an interesting one because the S&P, if you look at the S&P returns versus the international returns, they were vastly different. It was like, you know, one was, one was not doing well, one was okay. Um, yeah. I mean, by the way, 2015, yeah. December 2015, they went from 0.25% uh, to, uh, to a half a point. And then they didn't raise again until December of 2016. And I always said, I said one, it back then. It was then, a one and done, right? So that's good. I'm not totally losing Yeah, it was mind. a one and done. Yeah. The thing that I remember about then, and I, maybe they've gotten better about this, but I always thought they should have just said, we're going to raise 25 basis points. And we have no plans to raise again until, you know, we're going to give it a long period, you know, six months, seven months to evaluate, of course, unless things change. But the fact that they raised, that kind of spooked the markets a little bit. Sure. Um, I don't know. Don't fight the Fed, right? A, raising, a, ra raising, a Fed that's raising rates is hawkish and, you know, it's 
tough to get in front of that, as we learned last year, it's for those of you that have never lived through a rate hike cycle. I still go back to 1994, 1995, and I've talked about this before, and I'm happy to talk about it again, because I think it's the most uh, close example to what we have now, X, you know, the inflation that we had. And the Fed started, you know, 1994, February, they raised from 3% to three and a quarter. And then they raised at the March meeting, the April meeting, uh, the May, they kept raising, kept raising. And then finally, what was this, July of 1995. So they start raising in February of 94. The Fed this time started raising in March of 22, so a month later. And then July 6, 1995, they raised the target rate from 55 to 5.75%. And that was where they stopped. And by December of 95, they lowered the Fed funds rate target from five and a half to five and a quarter. Like, I got to tell you, I feel like this is the blueprint we're under. And maybe they're done. Maybe they, maybe they do one more. I don't know. But it's eerily similar, Jay, just the amount. Now, the, the, the size of the raises isn't as much, but the number of raises certainly. I mean, they, they, they raised it almost every meeting, I think. They raised the off meeting, too. That was something Greenspan used to do. I mean, don't you think this is eerily similar? Yeah, in a lot of ways it is. And, and I would say the, you know, the Fed funds futures would tell you that, you know, they're expecting the first decline or first cut in September. That's the most probable time that it will occur. That's about a 50% uh, chance that it will cut once. There's a 25% chance that it will cut twice. So there's only a, tw- uh, you know, quick math there. There's only a 25% chance it stays where it is. In September. Now, that's according to the market, right? So this is another example where, you know, those that are placing bets and bets, investments, uh, out, speculation on the outcome of the of the uh, of the bond market are telling us that, you know, hey, there's a only a 25 percent chance they stay at this level uh, uh, between now uh, and September. So and that lines up with your six month, almost your six month, right? It's May. And then all the way out to, I guess that's only four and a half months here where the market is projecting it. But to your point, uh, yes, that would mirror the time period uh, much more closely like you're talking about. Again, I think my my feel is uh, unless there's something really bad, follow what they said they're going to do and it probably it doesn't get cut. But again, that's where the market is a little different in my opinion. Take that for what it's worth. Jay, we've also heard that this recession is the most anticipated recession ever, if in fact we do have one or we've had one or anything like that. Right. So I asked our friend Chat GPT, I said, what was the most anticipated economic recession ever? It tells me it's difficult to point to a single most anticipated economic recession in history. But they do give us three examples. Uh, the Great Recession, 08-09, the dot-com bubble, and the oil crisis of 73-75. And I know that it's been overused. This is the most anticipated recession ever. I think I agree with ChatGPT here that it was pretty clear that we were going to have a recession in 08-09. I think it was pretty clear when we had tech stocks, when, remember, they threw out, you know, oh, earnings don't matter. It's, uh, it's clicks. You know, it would just, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much money you make. And we, we'd look at balance sheets and, and cash flow statements and be like, Actually, the more money this company makes, the more they lose. That's probably not good. I can't say I remember the oil crisis in 73, 75, but I mean, 
I think it was pretty clear back then, but maybe people weren't so fixated on trying to predict it. And maybe that's the difference, Jay. I don't know. Well, that, the you know, the, the, the dot-com one was really tough to get in front of because eventually you would have been right, but it was rough to be on the bear side of that market with the, you know, that, the, the dot-com explosion that we saw in late nineties, early, early 2000, right? Like, so it was, yes, eventually you were right, but man, it hurt for a while. And sometimes that happens. It's, I guess it's worth noting that, that you can be quote unquote early. You almost never time a reversal exactly right. Right, Derek, it's uh, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do. I, I will, I will say I did time one trade completely accidentally right in my life. I was a, uh, this is my, I, I wouldn't say it's my best trade. I would say it's the one that I timed something exactly right. I sold WorldCom at $75 and the highest it ever printed was $75. I'm not saying that was my trade. I'm just saying I was in it the day and I traded it at its all-time high. And is uh, you got any stories like that where you where you where you nailed the exact reversal? By the way, it was probably like five shares, right? But uh, you got any stories like that? <laughs> yeah, mine was the uh, I shorted rough rice futures. <laughs> there was a rice shortage, and uh, Kathy, I was at my dentist office, and um, they had a TV channel on. You know, they sit you in the chair and they watch it. And Kathy Lee Gifford was holding up a bag of rice, saying, "I don't know when it's going to stop. You know, how much rice should we buy?" I mean, this thing, it's going to, and they were showing empty store shelves at Costco and they showed a chart of rough rice. Nobody ever talks about rough rice in the financial media. I mean, I went home from the dentist. I pulled up my commodities trading account. I got short ride rough rice. I actually panicked because I'm like, you know, <laughs> this thing breaks up above me. So I, I took profits early if I had, if I wrote it, would have wrote it all the way down, but it basically looked like the tool bottle. You bottle. nailed the top on rough That was rice. my good work. Absolutely nailed it, Jeff. Absolutely <laughs> nailed it. Yeah. Well, Kathy Lee Gifford nailed it or, well, you know, my contrarian you know, sense. That, that sound, right? So. Yeah. Kathy Lee Gifford showing a chart of rough rice features told me it's time to short rough rice features. Ask chat GPT, Kathy Lee Gifford's investing success. Has it got any idea? There, can we? Is there any way to drop that? Now, I'm throwing you a curveball on that one. Oh, I hear him typing there. Oh, you hear me typing here. Yeah. This, this yeah. will be this will be exciting. Yeah, let's um, see. It says her. her I got to tell you too. Well, it's uh, um, it it says, uh, but I am not aware of her being an investment professional or having a significant investment portfolio. So, that you, so pulled, you pulled that gem out of the dentist chair and you, you took it for your fit, your best trade ever. I gotcha. It's, yeah, it's one of my best trades ever. I got to tell you, Jay, and I don't know what your thoughts are. We haven't really talked about this on air, but I think chat GPT is, it's really interesting. I actually signed up for the, the chat GPT four. So I'm paying 20 bucks a month. You know, you can cancel at any time. I'm going to try that. And I'm learning how to prompt it. But in our, I know, you know, people kind of have fun with it right now. Can you imagine a, a point where, you know, we subscribe to data, market data, and you and I sometimes will be on the phone and we'll say, I wonder, you know, all the times the market did this and didn't do this or vice versa. And we have, you know, daily data going, you know, that we, we purchase. Can you imagine when ChatGPT is integrated with some of these data providers and I could just, you can just ask it stuff like, oh, tell me all the times the market went down. 
after you know, 20 days after a Fed meeting and, you know, all these sort of, it, it starts to get really interesting to me. I mean, it, it should be able to back test for you, right? I mean, that's that's right. really what's happening there. It's funny, you, you mentioned ChatGPT Chat being integrated into investing. I met with the platform this week. It's not something we're going to use. But uh, the way that it was pitched to me was, look, we'll take your portfolios. We're going to help you rebalance them. And we use AI for commentary. And I was like, wait a minute, using AI for what? And all it was, was they're using uh, AI to comment on what happened in the portfolio. So it'll comment on, here's the rotation of the sectors. Here's where you saw money flow. Here's the sector that performed the best and the worst. And here's what we changed in your portfolio accordingly. So I thought from a content perspective, it's really, uh, it could be interesting for sure to use it as kind of a, a, today you could use it as a look back. I was about to ask you, you know, the next time we do a blog update, why don't you see if chat, you feed chat GPT all of your hypos updates and let's see what it can do. I think I will do that. And there's some people doing some really interesting things on the writing side. Yeah. And it's, it's all about how to prompt it. Um, the thing I will say, Jay, is I still, uh, it's problematic that ChatGPT has to access other data to produce new data. And I, if I'm a lawyer, in, if I'm in law school, go ahead and focus on ChatGPT uh, uh, copyright infringement. <laughs> I think there's going to be a, a bull market for, uh, for lawyers in, in uh, AI, I think. Just my guess, not not legal advice, but yeah. You know, but I think it could make, I do think there's a lot of applications in our business, right? So even if it's just your operations, uh, not necessarily the trading aspect of it, right? But I do think, I think it's going to be a while before anybody trusts that. But it's to a degree, it's happening right now, right? With all the, the quants that are out there. I would I would say though, in like some of the stuff that is more regular and, and, uh, and regimented when it comes to say reporting or you know, client reports and those types of things. I do think that uh, it'll have an application there to help in, in the content creation. And quite frankly, I don't care if it's using, you know, our content to recreate new content. I think that's fine. I'm going to try that. I, I will certainly do that. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, the other interesting thing, well, I won't even bring it up. I was going to say the semiconductors, but this has implications you need a lot of computing power to to run this. So I don't know what that means for the semis. Well, no, AMD just had a huge day yesterday because uh, on Thursday, sorry, it wasn't yesterday when you're listening, because uh, they said they got, you know, funding from Microsoft to help them build the new chips, right? I think AMD was like up 10% on Thursday the 4th. So yeah, NVIDIA pop, the pop in NVIDIA over this year has been directly resulted, a direct result of their support of the of AI. So you are absolutely right on that, right? I'm not saying that's the way to go play this. seems like NVIDIA is the solution when anything cool is going on, right? Whether it was crypto, whether it was gaming, computers during uh, the pandemic, and now it seems like chat GPT so, or AI. Seems interesting for them. Not a recommendation of NVIDIA, by the way. I'm not recommending No, it's uh, – but you know what this reminds me of too? I don't know if you remember Tim Ferriss. You know what Tim Ferriss is, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Tim Ferriss wrote a book called The The Four-Hour Workweek. This is probably 2008-ish, somewhere around there. And one of the things he had in there was he hired uh, an overseas personal assistant. 
And the idea was, you know, he would write down kind of like prompts where he'd say, you know, find this for me or find that or even restaurant reservations, like a concierge. This is really similar to that. And I could see this being integrated. Like, could you imagine if they integrated this to uh, what's what's the restaurant site? Like Open Table? Yeah, Open Table, sure. Where you can just, yeah, can you imagine you just tell ChatGPT, you know, find me an Italian restaurant in New York City between this time and this time with this price range. And I mean, any even just like think about the research stuff. Like if if you or I wanted to do a lot of research with market data and we could maybe ask ChatGPT the same thing as opposed to paying somebody, hey, go go test this or go go research it. It's just it's really interesting to me. Yeah, it could make a reservation for us at Dorcia. Oh, that's an American psycho reference, Dorcia. Sorry. I watched it recently again. It's been a while. All right. Well, think, speaking of recommendations, you you saw a movie or have you seen any movies right, lately you want to talk about? I did. I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, disappoint a few people. I, I saw Guardians of the Galaxy 3 uh, on opening night, and I'm going to tell you, it wasn't good. I didn't like it at all. I actually... One point was like, if I was sitting in my in my living room, I would have changed the channel. Yeah, not a fan. Really? Sorry, Marvel. Not my fave. And I like Guardians. Are we going to cause the stock to crash with your with your dis, displeased of... Are they still public? Is Marvel? No. Who owns Marvel? No, they're owned by Disney. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, sell Disney. I'm kidding. 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 No. <laughs> <laughs> not a recommendation. I never got into all those movies. It wasn't until, you know, my son started liking them that I ever saw them. It was the like, I, I can tell the story, Jay. I'd seen, um, oh, what is that? Endgame? Who's that? Yeah. Movie? Endgame, right? Yeah, that was a good yeah, so one. Yes, I saw it. And, you know, I, I don't want to, no spoilers, but it was just funny because apparently after all these movies, which I'd never seen any of them, they all got together. And then I remember Michael Douglas is, walks in. I'm like, what is Michael Douglas doing here? And I had no idea he'd been in one of the other movies. So Yeah, Hank Pym. You got to know Michael Douglas from the Ant-Man series in there. Yes, of course. The Ant-Mans were, were not bad at all. But yeah, you got to you gotta look. There's a lot. Like, uh, Robert Redford is in those. Like, they, they've got a lot of actors have just found their way into the Marvel Universe. This one wasn't great. Sorry to say it. All right. Please prove me wrong. Please comment comment back and prove me wrong if you loved it. <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy is uh, is getting a, a was it two thumbs down? Is that uh, the Siskel and Eber thing? Yeah. I almost yelled out in the movie, this is boring. But, you know, there were all wow. the people dressed in the Guardians garb in the movie theater, and I thought maybe I shouldn't cause a riot. Really, I'm really negative on this one. My apologies. Yeah, you are. You are. Was it better or worse than Ishtar? <laughs> same. <laughs> Some people in the audience will get that reference. Yeah, same uh, as Ishtar. Who is that? Warren Beatty and uh, Dustin Hoffman, I think, right? Stuck in a desert. Wasn't was that? Yep. All right. I got nothing uh, this week except you should be watching the hockey playoffs and – Jay, I know you, you got to get some hockey fever down there in Florida. The Florida Panthers upset the Boston Bruins, and they're up 2 nothing against the Toronto Maple Leafs. Well, we have a hockey team in Florida. You have two hockey teams in Florida. You have the light, Tampa Bay Lightning, and you have the Florida Panthers. They're wow. in Sunrise, Florida, which wow, is amazing. 
I'm near, kidding. I knew that. Where's Sunrise? It's, it's, Fort Lauderdale? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That area. Okay. Yep. So, yeah, you, you got to get to a game. I mean, they they were the last team to get in the playoffs, and they beat the Bruins, who had the most regular season points ever in the NHL in, you know, over like a hundred years. So they upset them. And then, you know, the Maple Leafs have been snake bitten, but in the playoffs, they haven't gotten out of the first round. They get out of the first round. They're already down two nothing. So hockey playoffs are great and playoff hockey, especially when it goes to overtime, because they don't do any commercials. It's just, they just keep going because otherwise the games would take forever. So that's my recommendation. ESPN, TNT, TBS, look it up. There you go, Jay. Could you ask Chat GPT the most watched show on HBO? Let's 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 get a, a recommendation from Chat GPT. I've prompted that. Right. But- most watched show on HBO current. Well, I can't say currently because doesn't the training data only go up through twenty two? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not. Yeah, you know, I I'm guessing Sopranos. All right. Well, it says it says, "Hey, I'm an AI language model. I don't have access to real time data." Uh, but as of the end of 2022, Game of Thrones was the most watched show on HBO. Oh, all right. Um, Listen, I watched that one too. And we've, we've recommended that so, multiple times and referenced it multiple times. But anyway, there you go. Chat GPT gives you a recommendation. I'll, I'll ask you for a list. So this is how I'm thinking. So Sopranos was number two, Sex in the City three, The Wire, True Blood, Westworld, and then, you know, Entourage was 10, uh, by the way. But yeah. So that's that's interesting. Fun with ChatGPT. Good work. So I don't know where Succession is in this, but was Succession this is season four? I, yeah, I think it was around in twenty one, wasn't it? No, it may not have. No, it was it? Definitely, yeah, yeah it was. definitely was. Definitely was. All right. Well, I think we'll leave it there, Jay. We've uh, our our friend, but I, now I, now we get to put ChatGPT in the title. So that seems to people like that apparently. Fun stuff. We'll figure out a real use for it. It's event. like the dot-com in the 2000s, Jay. Remember? Like, if you had a bookstore, just call it your bookstore.com, and immediately, you know, you had a, a $50 billion valuation, right? I remember when Clorox launched Clorox.com, and, you know, all these, they sell bleach, and boom, the stock went through the roof. I remember. I mean, Pets.com. Remember that one? Oh, well, that's the poster child, of course. Yes. That was the sock puppet. That was the, they spent like a million dollars on a Super Bowl ad. And they IPO'd, I think, in the spring of 2000, and they were bankrupt and delisted, I think, by the end of the year. So definitely the poster child. They were, they were just early. Think about like Chewy and all the companies now that support your pets. Pets.com was just early. They were. So, all right. So real quick, <laughs> I went back and I looked at their uh, their offering docs on their IPO. Yeah. What is that called? The S- S4? S3? What is that? I don't know. I, I knew um, it when I took the test. Yeah, yes, yeah, So I went back and looked at it, and it was the risk of the business. So they had they were headquartered in the San Francisco area. They had one warehouse, and one of the risks was there'd be an earthquake. And you know their their distribution their their distribution center would go down. So they literally had one distribution center in Northern California. The other was that maybe people won't adopt the internet as much as we think that was that was one of them as well and they didn't have earthquake insurance so if there was an earthquake and they had damage so it was just really fascinating to go back and look through the the offering docs and they had never made money 
in like, I think 10 years of being a business up until the IPO. I don't think they ever made money. So there you have it, Jay. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, Derek Moore, Professor Derek, reviewing offering dots. <laughs> Derek, no one's going to get that, that kind of content anywhere on the internet. I, the good work. That's great stuff. Yes, absolutely. All right, Jay, we've beat this up enough. Uh, we'll talk to ChatGPT next week. Thanks again, Jay. You got it.